When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and uh, welcome to New Books in Medieval History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Evan Zarkadis, your host, uh, and in today's episode, I am very excited to be talking with Dr. Joel Anderson, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Maine, to talk about his new book, Reimagining Christendom, Writing Iceland's Bishops into the Roman Church, 1200 to 1350, published in 2023 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Dr. Anderson is a historian of medieval Europe, uh, and and his research revolves around issues of communication, imagination, and authority in the high and late medieval church. Hello, Joel, and welcome to the show. Hello, Evan. Thanks so much for having me on. This is a real pleasure. It is is a pleasure for me indeed. Uh, I should mention that uh, you were my um, master's advisor, so it's definitely uh, an honor to be able to uh, give you uh, this interview. Well, it's an honor to be able to speak with you and to, to chat more about medieval history, which we've um, spent plenty of time doing. Absolutely, yes. And um, this was my first um, book on anything to do with medieval Iceland. So from that, I, I want to say that the book read very well. Um, I was really, I was really intrigued by the way um, you connected the local examples that you were using. Um, and the local stories and the manuscripts that, that you worked on with the broader Christendom, medieval Europe, and some of those themes that were going on at that, at that time. So I, I was really engaged with, with, with that. So uh, I, just want, I, I just wanted to put that out there. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, that's what the book tries to do. So I'm, I'm glad that um, resonated with you. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. So the book is about medieval Iceland uh, and Christianity, of course, the Christendom, the expansion of Christendom um, and the spread to medieval Iceland from the 12th century through the middle of the 14th century. Um, talk to me a little bit about how did you come to this book theme, book idea? Where did this whole process and research uh, start? Great. Yeah, I can uh, uh, start uh, back a ways and uh, talk you through um, how this book came to be. But um, it's a product of my, um, you know, studies over the last uh, couple of decades or so. It's kind of scary to think that it's been that much time. But um, I uh, did my undergraduate work at Bates College in Lewiston, Maine, had a terrific uh, uh, advisor there um, who sort of encouraged me to um to study further. Uh, his name was uh, Michael Jones. Uh, I did a couple of um, 
different master's programs after graduating from Bates, um, one uh, at the University of Oslo and the other at the University of Iceland. And these two master's programs um, introduced me to the genre of texts that are at the very center of my book, um, namely the Icelandic um, bishops sagas. So uh, the bishops sagas are uh, essentially biographies of Iceland's bishops um, written in the 13th and 14th centuries. Uh, compared to their um, celebrated cousins, the sagas of Icelanders, the bishop sagas have, have received comparatively little um, scholarly attention. But um, really from my first encounter with these sagas as a master's student, I found them to be fun, uh, inventive, uh, quirky, uh, and really worthy of, of close scholarly attention. And so uh, the time I spent at uh, Cornell University, where I did my PhD under um, Warren Falk, uh, was time spent uh, thinking about how to situate uh, the Icelandic bishop sagas in some wider um, historical and uh, uh, historiographical contexts. Um, and so the era that I write about in the book uh, is, is the era between roughly 1200 and 1350. It's an era in which government is kind of growing uh, across Europe, especially written government. So government uh, through uh, documents and literacy and administration. Um, within the medieval church, this is also the era of the so-called papal monarchy, um, so that's a notion that the Pope sort of rules over the church um, just as a king or a queen um, rules over their kingdom. And the kind of standard um, historiographical narrative of uh, this era in the Roman church uh, is that it's one in which um, the Roman church is sort of extending uh, its authority and um, uh, subjecting peripheral churches, including the Norse church, um, to that authority, uh, especially through uh, kind of written administration and written government. And the, the bishop sagas that I was reading, these Icelandic bishop sagas, I think told a, a more interesting and more um, complex story, a story about how um, Icelanders on the one hand were kind of aligning themselves with the Roman church and with the papacy, um, but were also sort of... Um, repurposing and using and adapting uh, its authority to suit um, local ends and to advance agendas that didn't necessarily resonate with um, the agendas of um, the popes in Rome and other um, central planners in the mm -hmm. church. And so that's a kind of dynamic that I try to um, illuminate uh, in my book, which I've titled um, Reimagining Christendom. So reimagining Christendom in the sense of how Icelandic clerics reimagined what it meant to belong to medieval Christendom, but also reimagining Christendom in the sense of how we as, as historians, as scholars might um, kind of rethink uh, and reinterpret the dominant characteristics of medieval Christendom um, when we examine it, for instance, uh, from the perspective of uh, medieval Iceland and its bishops' sagas. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, quite a long process. Yeah, it definitely uh, took 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 you your your course of time in, into developing it and and finally um, putting it into a book format. Mm -hmm. um, how many were the bishop um, 
sagas? How many did you study? Or, or is it uh, one particular collection of documents? Yeah, there are um, several bishop sagas. Uh, uh, a table in the back of the book uh, helpfully sort of um, catalogs them. Um, but there are um, sagas of um, uh, Jon Ogmunderson, uh, a bishop saint, in a couple different uh, redactions. Uh, sagas of another bishop saint, uh, Thorlauker uh, Thorhaltsen, uh, again in a couple of different redactions, a couple different versions, that is. Uh, there's a work called uh, Hungervaka, literally um, like the hunger waker or almost a, a kind of appetizer <laughs> uh, is really what the title means. It's meant to sort of um, whet the reader's appetite for more uh, about the, um, the lives and biographies of the um, bishops of Skalholt. That's the um, uh, southern uh, episcopal see in Iceland. Um, then there are a couple sagas devoted uh, to Bishop Guthwinder Arason, uh, sagas uh, that relate, uh, or a single saga, I should say, relating to uh, Bishop Oni uh, Thorlaugsen, uh, and then also uh, a work that I'm very fond of, a 14th century work devoted to the life of uh, Bishop Laurentius Kalfsson. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it's a pretty broad genre uh, across several different um, centuries and several different bishops. Uh, I should say, I mean, there are other works that could be kind of uh, affiliated with the genre. Um, and uh, uh, certainly Icelandic bishops uh, who don't uh, uh, get their own saga. So it's, it's somewhat mixed, but it's a, um, a recognized genre within the field of saga studies from the 19th century or so. Uh, first editors uh, dubbed them the Biskupa Sulgur, uh, the sagas of bishops, and that label has kind of... Okay, yes. And uh, I definitely um, I definitely saw the sagas in many ways, um, and the way you describe it in the future, in, in some of the future um, chapters of the book, um, the way they were created, which was really interesting. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, Wordplay. There's a lot of uh, let's write things a particular way so they make our own case study uh, or or to to bring our point across the table more than something else. Uh, switch some words around. So, um, can you talk a little bit about um, the process of um, creating these sagas at that particular time and then the impact that they had? Because I know um with uh, as you described with uh, some of the bishops of Iceland there was a lot of like for example were they allowed to be married were, were, were some of these laws that that came into contrast and a lot of negotiation as you talk um with um the center which was uh, Rome the the center of 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 the catholic church okay yeah great thank you for that Evan. um in terms of how they're they're created um that's that's an excellent question um you know, it should be said that uh, the, the writers of the bishop sagas are, um, they're writing primarily, not exclusively, but primarily in Norse, um, uh, so in the, the local vernacular, but they're dealing with subjects that are kind of, um, 
you know, recognized subjects of um, literary composition across medieval Europe. So that is to say, lives of saintly bishops um, exist uh, in Latin uh, that serve as kind of models for the bishop sagas, uh, as do um, lives of, of not so saintly bishops. So um, uh, the, the gesta of, of bishops, these, these exist in Latin as well. So I think we have to imagine that the first writers of, of the bishop sagas are uh, familiar with these um, Latin genres and, and drawing on them uh, when they're um, when they're writing uh, their works. Um, a point that I try to make in the book, uh, uh, in various ways too, is that um, the bishop sagas are kind of written against the backdrop of the kind of growing use of writing and government and the growing use of documents in the medieval church. And this forms a really important context for what's happening um, in many different sagas. And I'm really interested in the ways in which the the bishop sagas kind of represent and play with um, uh, documents of various kinds, uh, papal documents, documents issued by the archbishop, um, so on and so forth. Um, and to the second part of your question, I think um, the, the sagas themselves serve as kind of um, platforms for their writers to, um, to sort of negotiate the relationship between their um, local Icelandic clerical culture and the kind of... Um, uh, culture that's uh, emanating from the Roman church. And as you sort of point out, there's there's some kind of obvious disconnects between these two things, obvious disconnects right. and obvious uh, dissonances. Um, the, the most obvious one is, is perhaps the fact that Iceland's bishops uh, are um, often, not exclusively, but often married um, into the 13th century. Uh, and this is extraordinarily late to find, um, you know, married uh, uh, bishops uh, anywhere in um, medieval Europe. Kind of clerical celibacy is always kind of technically the rule. It's it's um, uh, enforced and advocated for more and more uh, following the uh, Gregorian reform uh, movement in the 11th century. Uh, and yet uh, uh, bishops in Iceland are still married, indeed happily married, uh, one saga tells us, uh, into the 13th century. So I see the bishop sagas as a kind of uh, space where their writers are trying to figure out, like, well, you know, how do we deal with this, right? On the one hand, we, you know, we want uh, to recognize ourselves and our protagonists as um, good, upstanding uh, bishops, as uh, members of the Roman Church, as um, you know, followers of Christendom. On the other hand, they're quite obviously at odds with some of the the most basic rules for, you know, what it means to to be a bishop and. What I try to show in the book is the ways in which um, writers of the bishop sagas manage to, um, to, to kind of thread that needle. Um, so, for instance, uh, in chapter two, I talk about the case of um, Jan uh, Okmundarsson, an uh, uh, Icelandic bishop saint uh, who was a bishop in the 12th century. Um, his vitae, though, his, his biographies are from the 13th and 14th centuries. Um, and he has the distinction of uh, having married uh, not once, but twice. Um, uh, so in the eyes of canon law, he's technically a bigamist. 
Uh, bigamy in medieval canon law doesn't mean uh, having two wives at the same time as it, as it probably does for us today, uh, but it also refers to uh, having uh, uh, remarried after the death of uh, one's first wife, as uh, was the case for Bishop Yon. Um, so this is a serious, uh, it's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around, but a serious, serious irregularity um, from the perspective of um, the Roman church, from the perspective of uh, medieval canon law. So it's a, it's an irregularity that should have disqualified Yon from even becoming a priest, um, much less a bishop, much less a saint. So the you know the dilemma then posed to his hagiographer is, is how do we make sense of this? How can we um, how can we have reverence for this figure uh, in spite of the fact that he's uh, had two wives? And uh, as I argue in the book. Uh, the main way that they do this is by um, kind of um, crafting uh, this story uh, about the bishop's um, a journey to Rome uh, after his election. So um, a journey to Rome where he supposedly receives a papal dispensation uh, that allows him to become a bishop uh, in spite of the fact that he's a bigamist, in spite of the fact that he's had uh, two wives. Uh, it's evidence more broadly of, of the dynamic that I'm trying to um, illuminate really at the center of the book, which is the ways in which these Icelandic clerics are, um, again, reimagining what it means to belong to the Roman church. Uh, in a sense, they're trying to kind of have their cake and eat it too, right? Uh, they're trying to, um, on the one hand, acknowledge the authority of the Pope, uh, acknowledge that he has the authority to grant a dispensation that suspends the the rules that would otherwise um, prohibit a twice married man uh, from becoming a bishop, which is again a quite serious matter uh, from a medieval Christian perspective. So on the one hand, they're they're sort of acknowledging papal authority, but clearly they're using that uh, in order to advance an agenda that doesn't exactly resonate with um, uh, uh, the um, you know, advocates of the um, Gregorian reform uh, doesn't advocate, uh, doesn't resonate with um, uh, the vision for the church that is being sort of um, formulated in Rome. Rather, they're using papal authority there uh, to, to kind of grant uh, licitness and legitimacy to uh, a bishop uh, who otherwise would kind of be uh, outside of the law, uh, mm -hmm. grant legitimacy to a kind of local uh, Icelandic saint uh, whom they um, revere greatly. Yeah, um, I think that I think that was one of my favorite points of the, of the of the book um, and some of these examples. It's like it reminded me a lot of us in in today's society where we might hear something and then we might apply it different ways. It depends on what we want to get out of it. Like there were there were certain um, dictates by by Rome that um, the I believe the bishops of, of Iceland were like, yeah, the Pope doesn't really mean this. He means something else. So let's go that way. And then uh, in, the, in the example that you just pointed, uh, they're going directly to the Pope to receive the authority and, and legitimacy. So um, it's really unique to see that um, from a historical perspective, but also from a, you know, um, you know, we're, we're all humans at the end in many ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt to me that that a papal bull, so that the uh, document uh, issued from the Roman Curia, is a kind of powerful signifier of authority 
uh, across the Norse world uh, in the 13th and 14th centuries. Um, and uh, the writers of the bishop sagas, uh, you know, would kind of fully agree with that point. But what I try to show in the book is that the kind of content that a papal bull can be attached to is something that Icelandic writers are willing to sort of um, reimagine and reinterpret uh, mm-hmm. uh, along the lines that you described, along the lines that um, very much resonate with their own local agendas and not with um, the ideas of um, of the Roman Church's central planners. So another right. good example of that is uh, uh, this other Icelandic bishop, the subject of chapter three, um, Guthmundur Arason. Um, he uh, finds himself um, in exile in uh, Norway uh, twice during uh, his life. And the um, archbishops of Norway uh, uh, are quite skeptical of him for various kinds of reasons. And uh, his sagas tell us that they make the determination, or one of them makes the determination, that um, Guthmunder can't continue holding the Episcopal office um, unless he gets a dispensation from uh, from the Pope, uh, uh, much like um, in the case of Jon Ogmunderson. So then the saga has this delightful tale uh, in which Guthmunder um, sends a messenger to Rome. Um, that messenger uh, sort of feels very out of place at the Roman Curia because he's not very learned. He's got kind of um, you know filthy clothing compared to the other petitioners there. Uh, he finds his way into the papal palace and uh, can't seem to kind of get his petition to the Pope himself. And so he winds up um, saying a prayer to uh, the Virgin Mary and throwing uh, uh, his petition uh, from the back of a crowd. And of course, it kind of lands right at the Pope's knees. So this is the original Hail Mary pass uh, in my uh, estimation. Um, but anyways, of course, the, the petition lands there uh, and uh, the Pope reads it and um, Guthmunder gets his dispensation. And then, you know, once again, it's an instance of uh, Icelandic clerics um, uh, kind of acknowledging uh, the Pope's uh, supremacy over the law and it, the Pope's capacity to um, bend the law to make exceptions. But again, using that authority to... Um, uh, bolster the um, cult uh, of a local and and very uh, very idiosyncratic bishop saint. Uh, in this case, uh, Guthmunder Arason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and or I should say too the um, the the story itself is probably um, based on like a real papal document that was sent from the Roman Curia. Um, to uh, the Archbishop in Nidaros in the 13th century, but it said nothing about a, a dispensation for Guthmunder. In fact, it was probably a um, a document suggesting, kind of gently suggesting, uh, that he should resign his office. So there, like a real instance of a document uh, uh, from the Roman Curia, gets reinterpreted, reimagined, and kind of adapted. Uh, in the um, minds of these Icelandic clerics uh, to wind up saying something totally different from what it probably actually said. Um, uh, in this case, it, or in the sagas, it, it says that, that Guthmunder has this kind of blanket dispensation that suspends right. all the laws that would otherwise um, prohibit him from holding the Episcopal office. So uh, uh, just an illustration of your point, uh, uh, 
uh, that um, these documents uh, can be kind of um, reimagined and reinterpreted uh, along lines along the lines that their issuers did not um, originally intend. Yeah. That's very interesting, um, you know, to see that local, again, uh, I think um, a sub-theme for your book in my eyes is negotiating Mm -hmm. um, a lot of things. Um, And it's really, it's really, um, you know, how can we use that power that that comes to us? And my question, I guess, is um, the power that comes to us from, from Rome. Uh, My, my question is, I guess it's two questions when it comes to this particular um, example of, you know, using these bulls, these papal bulls that have very important weight on them. Um, you know, when, when we talk about general Christianity and the Christendom and the outreach of the Christendom, um, the, the first is, are, are there any indications that um, the papal authority uh, did that with other areas of Christendom? Or was Iceland, for example, the black sheep of uh of um of of christendom that they were trying to try to calm the waters and 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 figure out how do we interpret them into our our christian culture in many ways mm-hmm. yeah i think um this is a, a question that i wrestled with um throughout uh, the process of, of writing the book the question of just just how anomalous um is iceland and i think that um Ultimately, it's not that anomalous, actually. Mm. Um, but ultimately, the, um, the majority of clerics throughout medieval Christendom uh, had the same kind of relationship with the papacy that clerics in Iceland had, um, which is to say that they kind of apprehended papal authority um, through the occasional bull that they received, um, through kind of traveling texts and um, traveling messengers, um, through stories and tales about what the um, Roman curia was like. Um, and so even as the, um, this, the stories I describe about, you know, married bishops receiving papal dispensations and so on and so forth um, might seem like these kind of a weird, uh, anomalous, idiosyncratic products of this very isolated and weird and anomalous and idiosyncratic clerical culture. Um, if you just dig uh, behind the surface a little bit, you'll see that that the Icelandic bishop sagas are more like kind of prominent accentuations of the prevailing landscape. That is to say, they kind of hold up a, a sort of a distorting mirror or a kind of circus mirror to, to sort of realities within um, the Roman uh, church at the time. Um, and so, uh, for instance, as I point out in the book, um, there's a, a, an instance of, of priests in Sweden, you know, claiming that they have a privilege that uh, allowed them to um, Uh, to get married and to remain with their wives, a papal privilege to this effect. Um, Probably not, but actually like real papal legates were willing to kind of cut, you know, small scale deals with um, clerics in Sweden and clerics uh, uh, in Iberia, more or less allowing them to to keep their um, wives so long as they, you know, paid the uh, appropriate fines. So which is to, again, say that the, the Icelandic stories are really kind of uh, accentuations of, of a culture that's um, already there in medieval Christendom. They're not um, wholly off the map. 
Um, mm-hmm. In the case of, of Jon uh, Ogmunderson, for instance, the, the bigamous uh, bishop, um, there were stories um, circulating uh, throughout um, Christendom at the beginning of the uh, 13th century, end of the 12th century, as uh, Stefan Kuttner has pointed out, uh, relating to a, a supposed bigamous archbishop in Palermo in Sicily uh, who received a um, papal dispensation. And these tales are probably um, kind of the inspiration, uh, or at least partially the inspiration, uh, uh, that Jon's um, hagiographers draw on. So, um, you know, I try to make the case that um, as, as strange as some of the Icelandic stories um, might seem at first blush, um, when kind of set against their um, uh, their broader backdrop from the 13th and 14th centuries, they're more like kind of uh, distortions and prominent accentuations rather than kind of pure uh, anomalies that are uh, entirely off the grid. So no, I don't think uh, uh, that the Icelandic church is the kind of um, black sheep of uh, medieval Christendom. I think it probably shares a lot more um, characteristics uh, with other churches across uh, 13th and 14th century Christendom, other local churches than um, uh, than historians, or at least a previous generation of historians might be um, willing to admit. Right, right, yeah. And I guess the second part to that theme um, of, of questions is, okay, so you have the clergy in Iceland doing this negotiating, um, doing a lot of the active work of uh, reframing certain things, uh, enforcing other things, creating the, the network of connectivity and communication with, uh, with, with Rome. Um, and they see the papal um, documents um, as as important and and crucial for that for for that manner. Was that the same as with uh, the the commoners in Iceland? Um, the 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 Irish um, Irish. I'm sorry. Did the <laughs> the, the the Icelandic um, ba- ba- bishops and f- how how did they communicate the importance of that? Of the of that la- language and 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 laws coming from Rome, how do they communicate it with people of, of Iceland? Yeah, that's a great question and uh, one that I would say is is kind of difficult to to get a, a firm handle on. Um, the the bishop sagas themselves, I think, tell us primarily about kind of clerical culture in the the Norse world. So clerical culture, not necessarily. Um, lay culture. Um, however, you know, we point to examples like um, Bishop Auni Thorlaugsson, uh, someone I, I talk about in the book who has a saga devoted to him uh, as well. And he's really a kind of model of a bishop who is very much trying to kind of take the laws uh, uh, of the Roman church and make them work in Iceland. So he's kind of getting these plans um, uh, from Rome, for instance, for the, the collection of a new tax to finance the Crusades, uh, and he's implementing those plans uh, exactly as they were drawn up uh, in the uh, the papal bulls that he received. This, at least, is the um, impression that his um, biographer um, wants to uh, lead us with. So there's an instance of, of the kind of Roman church uh, being kind of impressed on the um, the, the, the lay folk, the commoners of Iceland uh, in, in a really um, um, 
in a way that that would kind of resonate with uh, Rome's uh, uh, own ideas for how these things should be done. But I really see Arni as the kind of um, as the kind of exception uh, in uh, uh, among Iceland's bishops. I think uh, other writers of bishop sagas are far more interested in sort of again tailoring Roman authority to um, to suit their own um, local agendas and how those agendas kind of resonate with um, the agendas of, of, of lay people in Iceland is is a, a really you know it's a complicated question so right. Uh, Guthmundur Arason, for instance, uh, certainly had some real uh, devotees uh, among the, the laity, especially the poor um, in Iceland, and as did his cult. Uh, he also uh, made plenty of enemies among um, secular society um, in Iceland. So it's, it's not really a, a simple story in any, um, in any way, shape, or form. One point that I think should be made, though, that, that other scholars have made um, very well in, in recent years too, though, is is that um, you know canon law and uh, ecclesiastical legislation, the law of the church, is really important for um, kind of thinking about um, mentalities in uh, uh, medieval Iceland, not just for the clergy but for the laity as well. And that that's been a point that um, again a previous generation of scholars was somewhat um, reluctant to um, acknowledge or engage with. Yeah, and, and thank you for for both of those answers. Um, so you mentioned a lot about a lot of recent scholars and what they've done about this. Um, that they see, I think I have a quote here from the book that they see they stress the participation of local society in ecclesiastical go- governments. Um, um, and I guess my my question to you now is uh, what what was the Belief before that new wave of scholars trying to see the local um, effect on that. What was the the previous uh, understanding of how this process worked? Yeah, I think there are a couple of, of sort of um, historiographical narratives there that I'm I'm kind of writing against, and as I uh, point out in the um, the quote that you gave, I'm, I'm far from alone in in um, disputing some of these. Um, uh, you know, characterizations, but the, the, I would say broadly speaking to, to sort of sketch some of the, the positions that I'm trying to, um, to rethink and, and write against, um, there's, there's a dominant narrative first, just about the Icelandic church itself, um, that it's sort of gradually being, um, gradually, but inexorably sort of being co-opted by the Roman church over the course of the 13th and 14th centuries, that it's uh, increasingly subject to the Roman church. Um, And again, I think that the story is much more complicated than that um, in the the evidence that I bring forward. There's a lot more negotiation. There's a lot more dynamism. Um, the previous uh, uh, kind of scholarly narrative, again, that I'm, I'm trying to write against, uh, sees this as a real era of kind of, um, you know, top-down control in the church. So ideas and platforms are kind of uh, formulated uh, in Rome, and then they're kind of diffused outwards from Rome and impressed uh, on various local churches. Uh, I see authority in the church functioning in a much more kind of bottom-up manner, um, where uh, petitioners and messengers and lawyers are, you know, bringing documents to Rome, 
uh, in search of some kind of um, response and uh, hoping that not necessarily that they can do something for Rome, but that Rome um, can do something for them. So that's a mentality that I see as is, is really um, widespread in the bishop sagas and one that I suspect is, is quite um, widespread elsewhere uh, in high medieval Christendom. Um, and another narrative that I'm trying to um, rethink is a narrative about kind of the growth of literacy and the growth of writing, uh, especially in, in government and uh, church government. And there again, I think there's a kind of um, uh, narrative of um, uh, increasing use of documents uh, in church government and those documents being used to sort of consolidate the authority of um, popes and archbishops at the expense of um, various local churches and local societies. And once again, I see a lot more room for um, negotiation, adaptation, reimagining, reinterpretation, and a point that I try to make, especially in the in the last couple of chapters of the book, uh, is that these documents issued by, by popes and archbishops, on the one hand, they are capable of kind of regularizing and normalizing the government of the, the Roman church, but they're also capable of, of kind of destabilizing the government of, of the Roman church. Uh, so instances of documents being used um, as we've discussed already, for purposes uh, uh, that run entirely contrary to the intent of their issuers, um, documents being, you know, forged, uh, uh, another obvious instance of um, uh, writing destabilizing rather than uh, regularizing government. So this, uh, once again, is, is a kind of point that I'm I'm trying to make, that the, the Roman church was not a, a kind of machine, uh, a sort of efficient bureaucratic machine, but uh, the metaphor that I try to use in the conclusion is to sort of try to think of the Roman church and, and Christendom uh, as a kind of greenhouse, right? As a sort of broad um, structure that's capable of nourishing uh, uh, a diverse array of, of species, a diverse array of, of local churches, uh, including, you know, this weird Icelandic church with its um, married bishop saints and uh, uh, saints like Guthmundur who go around consecrating wells and springs and so on and so forth. Right. Thank you. Yeah, I think that was a great uh, example of the greenhouse. Yeah, yeah. I, I never, I personally never saw it that way because I, I was never um, exposed to again this particular scholarship that you were that that, that you're talking about about Christendom and the Roman Church, but also um, through the case study of Iceland. Um, and to me, uh, as a scholar that that works on Byzantium and and more of the high me high medieval Europe as well. Um, to me, it makes sense. You know, how do you incorporate all of these distant lands and peoples? And to me, it, it, it always um, it always was a f- point of fascination trying to really think about how do you in 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 that age's technology and, and and communication systems, how do you really work with these distant lands? And I think this approach really and the examples, of course, that you brought forth and all the sources um, re- really bring it together in many ways um, to really understand how that whole huge system for, for the time worked um, cohesively in, in m- most times. 
Yeah, a really important facet of that um, sort of riffing on what you were saying is is the the rescript nature of um, papal government during this era. So by and large, what the um, papacy is doing is responding to petitions brought to it, um, rather than um, issuing its own you know edicts and uh, uh, rules, um, uh, just sort of. Um, uh, forged at the center and then um, dispersed outwards. There are some instances of that, but by and large, uh, papal government is a kind of um, rescript government, and that's that's a really important facet of um, understanding the uh, the nature of um, of government uh, in this era and what it's capable of doing and what it's not capable of doing. And basically, I, I think the um, the authors of the Icelandic bishop sagas are really attuned to the kind of rescript nature of, of papal government. And um, they have this sense, and again, it's it's a distorted sense, but it's probably not too far off the mark, um, that a messenger um, who journeys to Rome um, with a petition in hand um, can more or less uh, often get uh, uh, what he's looking for. Uh, even if that um, rescript that he gets from Rome, you know, contradicts uh, a previous uh, a decision um, or uh, something like that. This is not an era in which the, the papacy is, you know, um, keeping close tabs on the uh, documents that it sends out. Um, it doesn't have extensive archives. It's not doing a lot of um you know, cross-referencing uh, to ensure that, uh, you know, the, the dispensation uh, uh, granted doesn't contradict something that was, this, that was issued earlier. And um, Icelandic clerics are very um, capable of, of kind of taking advantage of this um, set of circumstances, which they um, uh, do to, I would say, quite uh, entertaining effect in the uh, bishop sagas that I write about in, in my book. Right, yeah, it definitely brought a different light, um, at, at least in my eyes, um, studying it and 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 the functioning. Again, I think it's very complicated, and 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 it's good to think it as complicated and not as simplistic, um, which I think was what ha- what's what what happened in the past in many ways. Uh, you know, that you have the papal bull, and everybody followed it in many ways. Um, I think it brings back the human nature and 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 just how Europe was at that point. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I, I think that um, resonates with what what I was trying to do in the book. Um, I should say. I mean, I still do find plenty of value in in some of those older scholarly narratives about the um, the, the growth of Christendom, but I think they need to be um, tweaked and and nuanced and um, examined alongside the um, the 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 dynamic negotiated evidence that I'm trying to bring forward in uh, in my book on right. Medieval Iceland. Perfect. Yes. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time, Joel. Um, Is is there anything that I forgot to ask you that you think is really crucial uh, from the book? Uh, No, I I don't think so. I think I I covered the the points that I was hoping to cover, and I really uh, uh, enjoyed uh, getting the chance to to speak with you today. Yes, absolutely. And our audience, of course, can uh, purchase your book and read more of those very interesting Icelandic stories themselves. Um, Before we go, um, I want to ask you one final question. Um, what are you up to nowadays? Uh, and do you have any interesting projects that you're currently working on? 
Sure. Uh, so I've got a one-year-old son, and I'm trying to spend as much time with him and uh, with my wife as possible. But um, beyond that, uh, I do have uh, some new ideas I'm batting around, some new projects that I'm, I'm trying to get a start on. Uh, I've become quite interested in this uh, figure from the 15th century, actually, so moving uh, ahead in time a bit. Uh, his name is... Uh, Henrik or Heinrich, or we would say Henry, uh, Kult Eisen. Uh, he is a, a German. Uh, he's a member of the Dominican order. Uh, he's from the Rhineland. Uh, and he winds up becoming uh, Archbishop of Nidaros. Uh, this is the, the primary archiepiscopal see um, that oversees the Norse world. Uh, he becomes Archbishop of Nidaros in um, 1452. Um, he's an incredibly literate and incredibly um, credentialed um, individual. He's a doctor of theology. He's a major figure at the Council of, of Basel in the 1430s. He's an advisor uh, and sort of diplomat for two different popes in the 1440s. And this archbishopric uh, in Norway should really be the kind of culmination of his career of devoted service to the Roman Church. Uh, but nothing goes according to plan. So he he shows up in the north. Um, he's opposed by the king of Denmark, who's the, the leading kind of secular authority at the time, uh, as well as this uh, shadowy character named um, Marcellus, uh, who's the bishop of Skalholt in southern Iceland, uh, even though he never even bothers to visit Iceland. Um, Marcellus is, is in some ways... Um, Henry's sort of doppelganger or even his evil twin. He's um, also a German. He's um, also a member of the, of the mendicant orders, uh, Franciscan, not a Dominican. Um, uh, he also wants to be uh, Archbishop of Nidaros, but whereas Kult Eisen is this kind of um, you know, servant of papal authority and a, a, a rule follower, um, uh, by the book kind of guy. Uh, Marcellus is a con man. Uh, he's a fraud. He's a swindler. He's a forger. Uh, he gets tossed in jail uh, uh, at a couple different points of his life for forging papal bulls and other things, but still manages to, to secure this um, bishopric in Iceland and just about manages to become um, Archbishop of um, Nidaros as well. Um, so, Cult uh, um, uh, Eisen is only in the north for a little over a year, but he's very busy um, while he's there um, writing uh, a treatise, uh, responding to questions that he was supposedly posed while he was archbishop, gathering documents uh, and uh, recording them, um, sort of recording uh, speeches and uh, other um, writings that uh, form part of his um, his campaign to uh, kind of establish himself in Nidaros and his dispute with the king and and so on and so forth and these um, uh, these writings survive in a manuscript form that's been uh, kind of partially edited uh, in a, a something called uh, Henrik uh, Kult Eisen's copy book, uh, copy book. So uh, his copy book, his notebook, something like that, which really makes for, for quite um, fascinating 
reading. And among the many texts that Kalt Eisen uh, gathered in his very short time in the North uh, is a chronicle of the bishops of the Faroe Islands, or really it's a, a kind of um, couple of, of different documents stitched together and called uh, a chronicle by the, the 19th century editor. So that's a very long way of saying I have a, um, a short project that I'd like to write uh, about this Faroese bishop's chronicle and how it um, wound up in this archbishop's notebook and how it kind of figures into um, Kalt Eisen's plans uh, uh, for the archbishopric and his, um, his uh, uh, sense of his time in the North. Um, that's a short project, but I see this possibly as also morphing into a, a, a quite a bit larger project um, that will kind of trace these two figures of um, Kalt Eisen, the uh, archbishop, and uh, his, uh, his evil twin, Marcellus, the, the forger and con man, and try to, to tell the story of um, their rivalry and uh, uh, joint desire uh, to become archbishop in uh, Nidaros. So uh, that's a project that I think could, could occupy me for some time and, and something I've been um, really excited about recently. For sure, yeah. Best of luck uh, for fin- for working on the project and and uh, bringing it to fruition. Uh, I'm sure you you staying you're staying in Northern Europe, so that's good, you know. <laughs> yeah, Northern Europe, but uh, with a more um, European flavor. Both of these guys are extremely uh, literate, extremely well connected, and uh, extremely well traveled. So just getting a handle on their writings is. Um, is going to occupy me for some time. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, I want to thank you again for being on the show. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. Take care. Yes. Thank you so much, Evan. It was a real pleasure.